Hi everyone, and welcome back to Grace of a Military Child and Life podcast. Military families are not like your traditional family. They are strong, brave, resilient, and some of the most incredible people I know. My name is Gracie, a U.S. Army brat, and I am your host. I am honored to be able to give military family members like myself a place for them to share their stories and experiences in the military life. Stay tuned for this week's guest. Hi, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of Grace of a Military Child in Life. Today, I'm here with Margaret, who is a Army child, Army brat. So, Margaret, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Very good. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So start by telling us what it was like growing up as an Army brat for you. Well, you know, my first memory is like moving a lot (laughs) (laughs) and pluses and minuses, as you know. Kids aren't appreciative of being separated from their friends, especially when you, you know, feel comfortable and have friends. And then all of a sudden you're being uprooted. The other things that can be negative about it are, you know, when your father or the parent is on an unaccompanied tour and then you don't see him for a while. I don't really remember this, but my mother told me about it. My father was sent for a two-month TDY in Alaska, and I guess because it was so cold, he didn't shave, and I was only <laughs> too old at the time. So she took us to the airport to welcome him back, and he was so excited to see his baby, and he had his little arms, he had his arms out, and I started screaming because I didn't know who this strange person was with the hairy face. <laughs> it really crushed me. Spirit. Now, yeah. on the plus side, uh, you learn to navigate almost any circumstance. You know, we went to different countries. You have to make friends. You have to learn what the rules are. You have to learn how to fit in and not offend people. And I think that made me very comfortable as a grown up uh, in my life professionally and otherwise, because you use those skills wherever you go. Yeah. Absolutely. I think there are so many, you know, there are so many negatives to the military life and it's a struggle for so many, you know, like you said, making friends, moving around, you know, those unaccompanied tours, everything. But then it's so rewarding looking back at it as an adult and everything that you've learned in those years of growing up, of moving and making new friends and putting yourself out there that really impacts you as an adult. Exactly. I think overall it was a plus. I was a bit of a sensitive kid, so I know emotionally I had some issues with it, but uh, a little bit of therapy gets you through those stories. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think, you know, it's definitely something that we have to adapt to everything and we have to just constantly keep rolling with the punches and take whatever cards are dealt to us. And we don't have the option to say no. Like if we don't want to move somewhere, we can't say no. You just have to go with it. And it can be so hard and so much to ask of a child that, you know, while we didn't get to sign up for this. We didn't get to choose this lifestyle. And so a lot of people think of that and view it as such a negative way. But then, you know, you look around and you're like, this is actually kind of cool and uh, right. incredible thing that I get to experience. 
I actually feel sorry for the people who like lived in one place their whole lives. <laughs> I like that, you know, he grew up in Ohio and he left and then he's lived in Florida ever since. And uh, so he has no clue, you know, what the rest of the world is like. It's actually been sort of fun because I've been taking him on trips and introducing him to other cultures. And he's like so amazed uh, in some ways, I think, you know, the, he just doesn't know how to get out there. He's he's rather timid. And I'm like, geez, I never thought about it because I was always the shy person. But I think being a military brat definitely made me stronger and better able to fit in. And it's been a real plus with patients because, you know, one of the challenges of being a doctor is so much of whether a patient gets better or, or does well in a procedure is is how you can communicate with them. Yeah. And do they understand what you're talking about? And I think because I have seen so much, I have a better understanding when a patient may not be on the same wavelength as I do. And I have many more skills and uh, techniques to communicate to them what they need to understand and what they need to be able to do to be able to get through a procedure in the most healthy way. Yeah. And the medical field is no joke. Like it is, you know, where you make a mistake and, you know, that's someone's life that you're risking. And, you know, that's one thing that I was like, I was going on the medical track and then I was like, mm, this might not be for me. <laughs> but um, there's so much that you know, you can take from the lifestyle of a military brat from growing up in those situations that apply to your career and later on in life that, you know, it's hard. Like I could not imagine living in one place. Like I have lived in three different places and I could not imagine being in one. So <laughs> it is definitely an experience to move in. It's so important to be able to put yourself out there and find a love for travel and see the rest of the world. I think so, because many people become fearful of what strange things might mean to them. And, right. you know, the world drinking because we have, you know, the Internet, which connects us. And yet there are real time consequences if we misunderstand each other. So I think it's very helpful to have had a wide variety of experience and realize you know, wherever you went, people are people, even if they have different customs and, you know, to be able to get past those differences and to find a way to communicate with someone who eats entirely different things than you or has different ideas about the world. But pretty much most of us are good people. Yes, I love that. Do you have a specific place that you call home? It's like the hardest question to ask a military brat, but <laughs> do yeah. you have somewhere? I have never really thought about that. Um, uh, no, I I don't. You know, I've lived in Florida now for the long longer than any other time. Uh, I was myself in the army. It paid for my medical education, so I was eleven years on active duty as a trauma surgeon in the military. And I would have made it a career. I also had like another four years in the reserves, but. For me, it it wasn't working out. I don't know if it had to do with my gender. Um, 
or what it was. My father had the, my adopted father had the same issue. He was a chaplain and he really believed in the, um, the, it would be God, then the commander or, or God, the commander. And then, you know, all the people he served. So the commanders didn't like having God above them. So right. <laughs> he what he felt was the right thing. And as a consequence, he, he held the distinction of being one of the longest serving uh, lieutenant colonels or without being promoted. Just because <laughs> <laughs> he didn't kiss. So probably shouldn't. <laughs> Anyway, so uh, he taught me that lesson, and I wasn't getting anywhere in the military either, so I decided it would be best that I left, and people were saying, oh, you have 15 years in, just five more years, and I was like, I'm sorry, you know, my life is too short, Yeah, and it actually worked out very well for me. I'm glad that I left when I did. Otherwise, I would have been caught in some of these backdoor drafts. But uh, I wanted a family, and my window of opportunity was closing rapidly, so I, I had to get out. And I came to Florida, and I've enjoyed having some roots here, but I do like travel, so that's that's a result of my heritage. Uh, I know when I'm stressed for some reason, I always like crave Japanese food, and that might be because, you know, that was where I was born. Yeah. In fact, my uh, mother was Japanese, so it's kind of interesting. I've gone back uh, and tried to see if, it, you know, if that country speaks to me. It's an amazing country, but unfortunately, a little bit racist. They don't seem to like the mixed blood children. So I enjoy visiting it. And my mother is still alive in Yokohama, but it's a very odd relationship. <laughs> I think she's just proud of me and embarrassed by me. So here we are. <laughs> I don't belong to anywhere. I belong to the world. That's how I feel. Yeah. No, I love the outlook of that because it's it's so isolating when you put yourself in one place and say, this is where I'm going to be forever. And, uh, you know, it's kind of relieving to have you know, roots somewhere and it's great to be able to go back, but it's so fun to get to see the rest of this country, the rest of this world. And like you said, experience those cultures and try new foods and see new places. It's, you know, something that everyone should do in their lifestyle or in their lifetime. I strongly believe that. <laughs> yeah. So. Do you think, um, you know, you mentioned you served yourself. Do you think that your dad's service kind of had an influence on that? Well, absolutely. I was used to that lifestyle. It felt comfortable to me. But the main reason was, you know, I didn't have any wealthy relatives to put me through Harvard Medical School. <laughs> so I kind of had to Uncle Sam. So I want to thank all the taxpayers out there that helped me get to it. A very good education, and I hope that I did pay it back. As I said, I got to serve in many uh, interesting places and have a lot of experiences as an army surgeon myself. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I would have stayed in forever. But uh, actually, the funny part, and I don't know how much is genetics or not, I always wanted to join the Air Force because they had the pretty blue uniforms. <laughs> <laughs> But the Air Force was exclusive. They wouldn't give me a yes. They put me on a maybe list, and I needed to have a commitment in order to go to school. So the Army right. took me in, so they got me. 
Yeah. College <laughs> Actually, is no, to be tr- expensive. So. <laughs> yeah. Be a marine, but apparently they don't have doctors, so I don't know what they do. Shoot them if they get injured or sick. <laughs> I took care of many marines while I was in the service. So it was just wherever you were stationed. Yeah, it's you know we love our. My dad was injured in Afghanistan in 2011, so we have our fair share of being on military bases with military doctors, and we are very thankful you know, to everyone, a Navy corpsman saved his life. So um, he was Army and he was attached to the Marines. So it was, everyone was there. And it's um, really incredible to see the the way that just all the military medical community surrounds these guys when they come back and are injured and have, you know, my dad was an amputee. So traumatic injuries that, um you know, take a lot of healing and recovery from. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and some kids handle it better. I have, uh, you know, the two sisters. I was adopted with another half Japanese girl who was seven years older than me. And uh, I was too young at one years old to know, you know, what was happening. But uh, I guess she was old enough and her mother told her, oh, you will be you should go with the Americans. They are all very rich. You'll have maids and everything. So <laughs> the stock would find out, no, not all Americans are rich. Right. <laughs> Especially not military. Right. And then as is often the case after they adopted, the reason we were adopted by a military family was back in those days, they didn't let the American military adopt American babies. They moved so much, they felt they were high risk. You know, if a child was adopted, there was no follow-up on the child. So the military pioneered the adoption of these Asian babies, the mixed uh, foreign children. So my parents were in their 40s and had not been able to have children. So they asked to be assigned to Japan, where there were many of these children. And uh, as is often the case, after they adopted, the pressure was off, so they got pregnant right away. (laughs) (laughs) My poor mother went first of one year in her 40s from no children to three children, an eight-year-old, the top Oh, yeah, I think it was a bit much. So my uh, older sister got stuck with a lot of babysitting. Yeah, I can imagine that. That's a lot. Right. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I did track down my natural father at one time. He was apparently an Air Force doctor. Oh, wow. uh, Genetic that I wanted to be in the Air Force myself. (laughs) Yeah. So you just come from like a military family all around. Yes. Even before I was born, I was. Wow, that is so cool. And, you know, such an incredible story because you don't often hear, you know, the whole adoption process of overseas and um, with military kids. And, you know, it's a whole whirlwind of a new lifestyle that, you know, we're bringing these kids into. It is. And it, you know, brings up some more serious issues. You know, my mother told me the story when I tracked her down. She said she was only 19 and she met my father at a USO dance. She said, we didn't speak each other's language, but he didn't wear a wedding band and he didn't try to hide her. 
he uh, took her to nice restaurants where the Japanese women normally didn't get taken. So at 19, she thought they were having a very big grand love affair, and she didn't realize that he was already married back in the States, and he had already a child. So she was so naive, she didn't realize, you know, that she was pregnant. She had morning sickness, and being a doctor, he smuggled her into the base hospital and did the test. So the poor girl found out she was pregnant when he sat her in a chair and said, now I have Japanese doctor friend who can fix this. So the way that he said it, she realized fix means this means I'm, you know, pregnant and fix means he wants abortion. And, you know, he shouldn't be this way. He should be happy. We're having a baby. We're in love. So she right. was so shocked. Didn't know what to do. She ran out of the office. And I don't know why she didn't go through with an abortion. You know, in Japan, they don't feel this is such a terrible thing. What is more terrible in that in that culture is to have an unwanted, especially mixed blood child. But I think she didn't realize he was married. So I think she just thought he had cold feet. And if he saw me, he would change his mind. So she was very strong, went off and had me somehow all by herself. Oh, my goodness. And, um, I know, tough lady. Yes. I had those good genes too. <laughs> so when I was when I was two months old, she scraped together money and she got a color picture of me, which she sent to my father in Tokyo. And he sent it back with a hundred dollar bill and a a hand a, a note his secretaries had written in Japanese, which said, "The doctor wants you to have this." So she hundred dollars was a lot of in 1954, but not enough, you know, to remember of time. But she was very pretty, so she was working as a model and very successful. And she would give me the baby photo shoots. And one day they didn't give me back. They had sold me to an American GI. Oh my so gosh. I actually yeah, trafficked as a child and and um she called the police, but the police couldn't do anything about it. it was an American. They had no jurisdiction over the army of occupation. But because she was so distraught and beautiful, they took pity and said, call child welfare. So child welfare became involved and they said, we can get the baby back. But, you know, this isn't a long term solution. It's a mixed blood child won't ever be accepted in Japan. Usually the girls can't marry. So they wind up as prostitutes. And I think at this point, after a year of hiding things from her family, because she came from a very good family, she was actually sort of spoiled the baby of seven kids. And her mother was 47 when she was born. So by the time I was born, her mother was 67. So I don't think she wanted the poor old lady to get stuck raising this child. And she hadn't told anyone. So she caved and signed the papers and then she uh, had a change of mind. But in Japan, as here, once you sign those papers, it's irrevocable. Right. So at that point, she had a nervous breakdown and tried to kill herself. She took pills and her roommate was going off on a photo shoot. So when the lady left, she wrote a note and took them. But the photo shoot was canceled because of a typhoon. So she uh, came back early in time to find my mother and call the ambulance. But at that point, the ambulance, uh, the hospital notified her parents. So she was in big trouble. 
I don't know if they were more upset that she tried to kill herself or that she'd had a baby without telling them or that <laughs> for adoption. All of those are big no-nos. Right. So ultimately, though, she had a very good life. She decided the best thing to do would be to marry a GI and leave Japan rather than be in disgrace. So she, being very pretty, had no trouble doing that and um, came to the U.S. and uh, uh, that marriage didn't last, but she got a job at the Eden Rock Hotel in Miami Beach, and she was a cigarette concession girl, and she actually was so cute. She was like a mini celebrity. She dated Frank Sinatra, and I have photos wow. to prove all of this. I, it's too bad it's a podcast. But, <laughs> yeah. well, she had a very interesting life and then ultimately remarried, and uh, the guy brought her back to Japan, so that's where she is now to this day she's still 90 and oh lives goodness. yeah pretty what cool. a story it is a story isn't it yeah no that's incredible like you would never have thought you know all of that would piece together but right. that is really incredible but I you know I think that's uh, one of the big problems with having uh, you know taking young men and sending them far from their families without right kind of supports. So I hope the military has gotten better over the decades at uh, dealing with those things. Maybe it's better, you know, now that there are more women in the military too, but uh, people will be people wherever they live. Exactly. Yeah, I think definitely, you know, as the years have gone by, um, even, you know, I'm still young, but seeing the changes from when, you know, I was younger to now, you know, there are so many things that that have definitely, I think, changed to positively impact um, just the way families are dealt with in the military, because that that's huge. And, um, you know, technology sucks and is great at the same time. And, you know, it's great to be able to stay connected a little better to your families when you're apart. Um, well, that's still extremely hard, but, <laughs> you know, it's, it's nice to be yeah, able to yeah. interconnect yeah. with all of that. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, you look very young. So I was thinking <laughs> a lot since I was a military brat. <laughs> yeah, it's fun listening to the the changes of just, you know, a couple years even and listening to the kids growing up now in the military or, you know, those who grew up prior to me and you know, my friends, that everything is so different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would imagine the social media and, you know, like our ability to talk where I don't even know where you're at, but uh, uh, to see each other face to face would make a big difference. Right. We, uh, I was in the pre-cell phone era. We had satellite phones, but they didn't work very well. And I remember when I was stationed in Honduras, we had like two landlines for, I don't remember how many, it was usually about 1,500 people. And you had to go through the operator to get to the party you wanted to call. So it took you like sometimes 10 or 15 minutes just to get connected to the you know, your family back home and chat and then there'd be a long line. So it wasn't like you could stay on the phone and you certainly couldn't see people. So that 
That was a big problem. And then, of course, the reservists would come onto the base after being out in the jungles for four months. And so they hadn't been drinking. And the first thing they would do is get all drunk. And then they would go to the phone to call their family. And because it took so long and they were drunk, they'd get mad. And invariably, at least one of the phones was ripped out. <laughs> but then we'd be down to one phone for like, you know, 2,000, 3,000 people. <laughs> yeah, and that's a lot. It's a that's lot. a lot. Everyone trying to use the phone at the same time. Right. And if the satellites were not functioning, now I think there's so many of them, it's almost like space junk up there. Right. Abundancies. <laughs> but back then, there weren't that many. So it was very hit or miss. And most of the time, I didn't even try because it was too frustrating to call. So you just kind of didn't think about it for the six months you were in Honduras. But that would be really hard for children. Yeah. 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 That's why, like, you know, so many kids growing up now, I didn't really grow up in where we had FaceTime and stuff available. Um, my dad deployed to Afghanistan once and I got a letter like there was no Skype, really. It was it was still, you know, growing in technology and social media and all of that. And so it's really cool to listen to those now and say, oh, yeah, I was able to like video call with my dad when, you know, he was deployed or my mom. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, listening to all that is really cool. It would be, although coming having seen both sides, I'm sure it's difficult, especially yeah. The parent is in an area of uh, danger. You know, you don't want to alarm the family. <laughs> you tend not to say stuff, but uh, people are pretty smart. And um, I think especially the young kids now can kind of figure out where people are and what's going on. So, yeah, there's always good and bad. A nightmare from the security side of things for the commanders. Like, you know, how much can the parents communicate? Right. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> but military vets have my deepest uh, sympathies, and uh, I'm glad I'm one of them. Yes, I think we, you know, as challenging of a lifestyle it is to live and, you know, so many challenges that we face and struggles, I think looking back, most military brats can say that they are so thankful for the life they lived and are so thankful to have been a military brat because of how much it's taught them. All right. And for those struggling, you know, it, especially I remember when I was younger, it was like I was too emotional and just anything affected me very negatively. But I think once you get to a certain age, if you can get there, and that's the problem. Many people panic if they're not able to have be strong inside or they feel like they're a failure. And so then they do stupid things like drink too much or try to medicate themselves with drugs or engage in behaviors. And so those are things that can actually shorten your lifespan. But if if you can get through it and there, I think are a lot more resources now available online. You know, we didn't have access even to the psychologist. I know my mother, well, you know, in the military, a lot of times what she's say to the psychiatrist if you're active duty is certainly not held in um, private 
private. You know, your commander has access to it. So you have to be very careful about those sort of things. But nowadays with online stuff, you have a certain degree of privacy and uh, access to things that we didn't have in the past. So I urge anyone out there that's struggling. A lot of us have been in that situation and we if you can get through it, it's going to make you a stronger person. So, you know, stay alive and get help. That's all I can say. <laughs> yeah. Well, that kind of just answered a little bit of the last question I was going to ask you, but do you have any advice that you would give to military brats? Yeah. You know, it's it's easy to be negative when you're young and, and things happen that are out of your control. I've got to start over in another new school. You know, I was always a good student. So when I'd move, of course, the, the good students would be threatened by me. So it didn't make me very popular. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, and I didn't make friends easily. So, you know, I didn't um, appreciate many of the advantages I was getting. And I felt things very intensely and I didn't feel good about myself. But uh, all I can say is these things will pass. And especially for older people, when you go back to your like school reunions and you see the popular people often turn out the worst. And sometimes the nerdy people or the ones that you didn't think were really that cool have a really good life. So it's easy to get discouraged, I think, when you're younger and think, oh, this is how my life always will be unpleasant. But you will have more control over your life and you just can't give in to those negative things. Be strong. You're needed. And the experiences you're going through will help you so much in the future. So don't let it get you down. It's real. But, uh, you know, the things you're going through are not easy for anyone. But you can do it. If I could do it, I was just a nerdy little, little geek person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I love that. It's, you know, so good to just remember those things, even though it's it's hard to think like that when you're in the moment. It's, you know, it's going to benefit you in the long run. So like, you know, I took up fire dancing when I was in my 50s. So now I'm a professional fire dancer. And I, every year I do something new. And I'm at yeah. that age, I'm almost 70, where people are like, oh, no, you're going to sit in the chair and not do things. I'm having a blast. And I couldn't have ever thought that, say, when I was 14 in Fort Benning and my dad was going off to Korea for a year and a half. So... You know, just hang in there. Yes. Hang in there. It yes, gets for sure. Thank you so much, Margaret, for being on the podcast and sharing your incredible life story. Well, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to get to meet you. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for listening to Grease of a Military Child and Life podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to give it a like, follow, and comment. Also, be sure to check out Instagram and Facebook at Gracewood Military Child and Life for more awesome content. For information on the podcast, Military Child Bigs and Littles, GoAMCL blog, or other resources, visit www.goamcl.org. You can also email me at Gracie, that's G-R-A-C-I-E at G-O-A-M-C-L dot org with any questions or comments. To be a guest on the podcast, you can schedule it at www.goamcl.org 
forward slash schedule a podcast, all one word, or contact me via social media or email. Stay tuned for the next episode where another incredible story is shared.